Well, everybody, welcome, and we hope that your school year has been off to a great start over the last number of weeks. Of course, what's the line from the television show, Winter is Coming? Yes, okay, maybe not dragons, but winter is coming. So what that means is we've got to be ready for it, and hopefully you're out taking good pictures already, because that's our topic for this episode of the Yearbooking Report. Welcome aboard. Again, I'm Scott Geezy. I've been a Jostens representative for the last 24 years now, been in journalism 40-plus years, and it's all about the stories, and hopefully you've done a good job just over these number of weeks or a month or two gathering a lot of fresh stories that you're going to use with your yearbooking effort. And of course, when we're talking about the book, we're talking about pictures. Pictures are still the number one element of the book. That's never going to change. But what kind of pictures? If you're like most folks, you just march up to people and take pictures, say, geez, you know that old line? Well, probably not the best photos. And so this episode is all about pictures, taking good pictures, equipment, strategies, and ideas. And recently we caught up with our friend Mike McLean. Now Mike is a professional freelance photographer from the Dallas, Texas area. Been doing it a long time. And we're fortunate that also, not quite as long, but for a long time too, he has been a photo instructor, especially with Jostin schools. And we really appreciate Mike being a member of our team. And we caught up with Mike recently, and I tell you what, we're going to get right to the interview because this episode's going to go long, longer than our normal episodes, because when we talked with Mike, we had such a great conversation with him talking about background, talking about photo tips and ideas, and then talking about nuts and bolts of photography. So if you want to improve your photography, maybe you don't know a whole lot right now, or you're just looking for some new uh, fresh ideas, I tell you what, grab a pen and paper. You're going to be doing some note-taking because uh, Mike really gets into it with a lot of aspects of good photography. And again, this is an interesting conversation that he and I had recently Get ready to learn some things. Even if you think you're a photography pro, get ready to learn some things in this episode, all right? So first off, let's meet Mike. Well, Mike McLean, first off, welcome back to the Yearbooking Report. I appreciate you taking time today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott, for having me. It's great to be back. Now, again, this is crazy, all right? You and I did this same deal, hard to believe, four years ago. Pre-COVID, boy, is the world a different place now. Holy smokes. But we're going to, folks, we're going to talk about photography here. And, of course, your book, Photography, number one element, a lot of things to cover. So start taking some notes because our man Mike here is an absolute expert. And, Mike, let's let's start from scratch, I suppose, for folks that may not you know, know you or know what you do. Let's start there. Tell us something about yourself. I know you're from Texas. I know you've been really busy lately. Uh, tell us something about yourself, your background, what you do, and so on. Well, uh, Scott, I will tell you that I first found my passion in photojournalism because of my high school yearbook program. So I was fortunate enough. I was a decent photographer, but I was fortunate enough to walk into my journalism room as a sophomore in high school. And I, I had a great uh, yearbook teacher. And she really inspired the students. And it was her that first gave me the idea and the concept of taking your photography skills to the next level. Of course, I was a decent photographer, even as a sophomore. 
But she explained to me that the difference between being a photographer and being a photojournalist is a photographer shoots, you know, really pretty photos, but a photojournalist shoots photos that tell stories. And that sort of uh, that was the beginning of my passion and my career in photojournalism. So from high school, I went to college and I worked for my college newspaper. And then I started working for a large daily newspaper based here in Dallas, um, telling visual stories, the same thing that I'm speaking to young photographers about through my Jossens connections. And I really am passionate about shooting photos that tell stories. And I'm passionate about sharing my experiences. In fact, I just got off of a workshop, a long workshop this weekend. And one of the things I realized is that it's a perfect exchange of energies for me to work with young photographers because I can experience and they bring enthusiasm and passion. It always reconnects me with my initial passion of when I got started in photography. And I, I still love it today. And I, I shoot assignments. I was shooting an assignment this morning. So it's been a great ride. And working with young people inspires me. Every opportunity I get, I'm inspired by these amazing young photographers out there working for your books. How long have you been doing this now? Well, I started my business in the mid-90s. Um, I had worked for a newspaper, the newspaper here in Dallas, which is a, you know, um, which was a great newspaper. And I realized that as a photojournalist, I was spending a lot of time covering things I didn't necessarily like, which would be like plane crashes and hard news events. And I realized that I like working on small feature stories and um, I like doing photo stories and I like doing environmental portraits. So I left to kind of pursue my freelance career. So I've been working since then um, completely freelance. And and it wasn't at that point that I realized the Internet was going to kind of take over how news is. Um, the news is being treated in a totally different way because the newspapers are not delivering the news anymore. So that was um that was um, an important precursor to what's happened now. But the, the whole reason I left was just because I kind of lost my passion because I was spending too much time on, you know, sort of human tragedy, which, you know, can be depressing after a while. So I like my job now as a freelance photographer. I get to pick and choose the jobs I want to do. And uh, I work uh, now for large corporations. I do a lot of work and um, with uh, advertising agencies and and corporate communications. And when I'm not teaching for Jostens, which is, a, I'm on the road a lot with Jostens, but I really love the work that I do. And um, it's, um, you know, it still is a, as much of a passion today as it was then when I started. Now, let me go back to the past of sorts. I mean, you sort of touched on it there a little bit back before you became a freelancer. Um, I'm thinking of a friend of mine, an old friend of mine. I haven't seen in years, actually. He was a sports photographer. That's all he did. He shot sports. He went to football games. He went to basketball games. And I suppose in the past, I've known photographers that were just news. All they shot was news. Now in your prior time, you know, before your freelancing, are, are you saying that they just kind of sent you wherever, or were you able to kind of specialize there a little bit? Well, I was too young to really, um, un I was I was a general assignments photographer, which that meant that I would cover, um, you know, three or four assignments a day. And sometimes I would shoot a sports game, but I was the youngest, most inexperienced photographer on a staff, which was a very prestigious uh, newspaper. We had, at the time I was a 
uh, a young photographer. I had three Pulitzer Prize winning photographers on staff and they I would just do general assignments, which would mean that I'd kind of get the ugly assignments, the sort of the assignments nobody else wanted. But I honed my skills there and uh, it just occurred to me that um, I wasn't happy shooting news and I like shooting sports, but I wasn't really good at shooting sports. And that's when I came up with this idea of being a freelance photographer. And um, honestly, that's when I started working with Jostens is that being a freelance photographer gave me more of an opportunity to work with some of the schools. And because of my connection with scholastic journalism, you know, through the professional organizations like JEA and NSPA, um, people wanted me to come and uh, work, you know, uh, at their workshops and to, to train other photographers um, on the photo skills that uh, are essential for being a yearbook photographer. All right. So you were on a staff with three Pulitzer Prize winning photographers and then there was you. Right. Well, there were well, there were altogether we had. At, and this tells you how the news business, the paper print business has evolved. We had uh, 28 photographers Ooh. and um, they were all really excellent photographers. And now a major daily newspaper here in Dallas might have three full time photographers. So they're just covering what they need to. They're not really, they don't have the opportunities like we did to work on uh, really important projects. They're just covering news events and uh, they're they're doing very few um, big projects like I always liked to work on when I was a young photographer. Um, so the idea of shooting photo stories is something that came from my news business. And now that's basically all a yearbook spread is, is basically a photo story. You're, you're using your visuals to tell the student body in that book what that experience was like so when i had the opportunity to work with young people i always want to express to them that they're working on a, a yearbook that's the way they see it as they're doing a yearbook but i always tell them that they're working on a historical document that will be around for a long time after they've you know graduated from high school and after the football games are over what remains is that historical record you know called a yearbook and a lot of young people don't have that opportunity to see that because, you know, they don't have that foresight like like you or I would because um, they uh, they're just younger. Wow. Twenty eight to three. I know newspapers have changed, but that's a stunning number. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Twenty eight down to three. Whoosh. Yeah, and the interesting thing to me is that. My mentor, who was a uh, staff photographer there, um, later became a National Geographic photographer. And he um, he uh, was on television the other day, and I watched his presentation. And um, it was very interesting. And I had a couple of my photo assistants that worked with me watch him. And uh, they responded in the same way that I responded to him as a kid, because he was this, at that time, he was a recent college graduate and he had this long blonde hair and he was a you know super photojournalist I wanted to be exactly like him so I understand the role that mentors play when photographers are just starting out you almost need someone there's you can go to school and study photojournalism which is a good thing but working with professionals in your area is sort of an untapped resource because when you're learning photography via a textbook or with our photo curriculum, which you're, you know about our photo curriculum, those are good resources, but it's not until a, a student can actually go out in the field and shoot photos that they really start to pick up additional knowledge. Sounds like an apprenticeship. Yeah, it's definitely an apprenticeship. And um, 
it, it it's good to see it coming back after the pandemic because you know for two and a half years we did no workshops. I mean, I would I would teach workshops via a Zoom conference meeting like this, like we're having now, and it's one thing to talk about photography, like I was mentioning earlier, but being out with students again, working in the field this past uh, weekend, we covered three assignments. We covered a football game. We covered a volleyball game. And uh, then we went out into the field, into a, a farmer's market. And we shot some photos in a farmer's market. And that's where the knowledge of photography really gets strong. Because I would say one of the challenges with young people is they have this amazing amount of resource information on YouTube. You know, you can learn how to use your camera. You can learn about all these cool photo techniques, which is good knowledge to have. But it's not until you really actually start shooting, actually going out in the field and meeting with people, meeting with real people and shooting photos with that camera that your skills really start to take shape. There you go. Now, folks, I've been trying to track this guy down for weeks. All right. He has been busy, 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 busy. Now, again, Mike, you've been working with Jostens for years, and we're thrilled to have somebody of your caliber on our team. What have you been doing lately uh, down there in your home state of Texas? I mean, you've been doing uh, you've been a busy guy. Yeah, I've been a busy guy, but a lot of the work that I've been doing, um, particularly over the summer months, I just taught workshops, you know, almost uh, one after another this summer because there's such a need after the lockdowns, people just wanted um they needed the extra attention of the hands-on experience because, you know, everybody had been learning online and that kind of stuff. So the, the last several months I've been teaching workshops, but I also have several clients that I work with that are connected with the military academies. So I do training for uh, photographers working at the military academies like West Point and the Naval Academy. So I'll go up to the to West Point, which is uh, our nation's most respected military academy in New York. I'll go up there and spend about two weeks training photographers, and then we will cover um, their graduation, which is uh, a week and a half long of um, events that are scheduled for the cadets up there, you know, before they graduate. So I, I continued, even during the pandemic, I continued to go up there and cover graduation. And generally what who I'm working for when I'm up there is I'm shooting photos that will be used in the uh, cadet publication office or, or their yearbook. So. Um, same thing with the Naval Academy. So then I have my own host of clients that I work with here in Dallas, Fort Worth. So constantly shooting projects for them. So I've been able to take the skills that I learned early on as a, you know, young high school photographer and kind of build those skills up to where I'm taking the, the same knowledge base and working with some of the, um, some of my clients that appreciate the same thing. You know, it's really interesting because I tell my students this is that when you follow certain techniques that we can talk about today, um, your clients really appreciate that. They don't know what a, when you shoot a great moment, they don't know how the, the, the process of getting a great moment, but they certainly appreciate that great moment. But those are all basics that I learned when I was a high school kid. Um, you know, right down the street from me where I'm, where I'm sitting right now at Irving high school. So very, very cool. Very cool. Now you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier and I've asked this question to a lot of teachers, administrators, and so on. The last two and a half years that we've all had to deal with, including you, you kind of touched on it earlier. How has the pandemic either 
I'm not sure, Mike, changed photography? Is that possible? Or at least changed your work? Or maybe nothing's changed. You know, we just stayed home for a while. Have these last two and a half years affected what you do? Um, well, they uh, during the pandemic, I mostly worked on COVID stories. So I would... Um, I would be covering, I would be in COVID units. So I'd be covering assignment, even before the vaccine was available, um, I would be in hospital units working, uh, you know, telling stories there, featuring, uh, photographing certain doctors that had, you know, gone above and beyond. Um, so during COVID, I was not as busy as I usually am, but at least I had, so, I had some projects to work on for uh, two or three healthcare systems here. So that kept me busy. In addition to that, I still would go up. They still did for graduation at the military academy. They still did uh, all during COVID. They would have graduation service. Now, for the graduation service, they generally have you know a stadium full of parents there. But for the graduation service at West Point, it was just me and some media people and a couple of other photographers that were there. There were no parents allowed. So that was a very interesting experience where you have these, you know, 1500 kids that are graduating from college and it's all being, you know, broadcast on a, you know, on a YouTube channel. So the parents are watching them walk across the stage to get their diplomas, uh, you know, via YouTube. So I still worked, but it has changed when I go into covering assignment now here and even in Dallas now, anytime you go into a healthcare institution, you still have to wear a mask. So and they're still doing temperature checks, you know, when you're working at a hospital. So I still have to go through all of those uh, safeguard, you know, checks as I go in to cover assignments uh, at a, you know, at a hospital or something like that. Mike, I'm just curious, and you can answer this however you like. Were you ever concerned a couple of years ago when you were doing these assignments in hospitals with what was going on? Did you ever have any concerns like I should not be here or something? Well, I did at, at some times, but I was working along with some of the best physicians that I really trusted that were coaching me on how to protect myself against COVID because I would be in literally ICU units. So for me, that would mean that I would uh, go through a, a protocol check before I even entered the hospital and I would meet with a physician representative that would tell me, OK, here's what how you have to be masked up. I would be masked up and I'd be wearing a face shield and then I would go into the locker room once I got done with the ICU uh, photography. Uh, my camera would be wrapped. Even my camera would be wrapped. So I look like basically I'd be wearing one of those surgical bunny suits and my camera, I would be in rubber gloves. My camera would be wrapped up. And I trusted what the physicians were telling me, you know, not to, you know, the simple things that we all know, not to touch our face and make sure that we, you know, wash our, our hands carefully and those kind of things. And then I would immediately go from the, the COVID units into a locker room and take all that stuff off so that I was leaving that at the COVID unit. So I never really worried about my, my own safety. And thankfully I never got, you know, I never got sick from a COVID unit. You ever turn the camera on yourself while you were doing all that stuff? Um, I have a few behind the scene photos of me <laughs> working at a, you know, at a, at a hospital and those kind of things. A bunny suit. Okay. That's an interesting way to describe it. A bunny suit. All right. Yeah. It's like a biohazard type yes. thing that you wear. It, it's almost like a, one of those painter guys or, you know, how painters wear the white suits. 
and uh, you're completely covered and, um, it, you know, from head to toe so that you're protected and you don't feel like, I mean, the only hard part is you have to trust your autofocus a lot because you oftentimes when you're shooting like that, you're wearing a shield and then you're wearing a mask. The mask would fog up and you're just kind of pointing the camera and hope that your autofocus is, you know, capturing something because it's hard to see the viewfinder. So that was the biggest challenge there. And of course, and all of that stuff, you're really super hot. Yeah, I can imagine wearing all that stuff, yeah. We'll get back to more with professional photographer and photo teacher, our friend Mike McLean, coming up in just a bit. Now, when we come back, we're going get, to get into the, start to get into the, a lot of the nuts and bolts of good photography. How do we get great pictures Maybe not necessarily, you know, we're talking about high school or middle school students. We're not talking about professionals, all right? We're not talking about folks with lots and lots of photo experience. How can anybody go out and take much better pictures just by doing a few things, all right? We're going to get in with that with Mike here in just a little bit. Now, of course, it's about all the stories, and Mike is sharing some of his stories in this particular episode. I tell you what, get ready for the West Point story that he has coming up in this next segment. And for those that check out our video element that we call the Yearbooking Report, which we put up on YouTube, uh, we've got a picture, the picture that Mike talks about, a very special picture of West Point cadets at the, their headquarters there in New York. We're going to share that image in our video segment. So if you want to check out the image that Mike is going to be talking about here shortly, check out our video element on YouTube when we get that posted. Really, really cool picture. And again, hopefully you're out there taking cool pictures because really awesome pictures tell stories just by looking at them. And hopefully that's our main goal. We are the storytellers. And maybe not just in our book, there are other ways to tell stories. This is not the same old, how do we say this? This is not your granddad's yearbook, all right? Not these days, not even close. What's a simple way that a yearbook staff can tell stories literally all year long leading up to the moment that you give out your brand new books, whenever that is for you? And of course, the quick answer for that one is simply social media. Now, for folks that, like me, were kind of old, if you will, we can remember life before social media. Now, granted, that's only going back, oh, 15 or so years, but it, you know, it's been a fast 15 years, hasn't it? Boy, everything is different. Everybody's on social media now, and if you're a yearbook staff that doesn't utilize social media, you're missing out because that's where your audience lives. That's, we're talking about teenagers especially, but even parents, everybody is on social media. Are you doing a lot of uh, social uh, uh, storytelling and announcements and other different things on social media? Now, for a lot of folks, it's like, oh, that's a lot of work. Oh, I don't have time for that. Yeah, depending on how you do things, it could be a lot of work. But if you're a Jostin school, we got the answer. It's our cool Jostin's Social Engine. This is still relatively new, really only eh, about a year and a half or so old. But the Jostin Social Engine, which is exclusive for Jostin schools, is amazing. It's incredible. With a few button clicks, click, drag and drop, finish, post, done. Tons and tons of ready-made social media material right inside the engine. 
or of course tools that you can make your own you know posts and and different kinds of things and so on depending on you know where you want to go all the major platforms how can we do this simply and easily well we've got it Justin's social it is a cinch to use it has so much great stuff it has a great calendar feature that you can keep track of all your different posts and campaigns and things like that it's got tremendous support so we want to make sure everybody knows how to use it well but it's not hard to use and all of a sudden you and your group look like social media professionals now wouldn't that be cool and all those extra stories that you can tell via social media about students all over your school. Jostin Social is the real deal. So I tell you what, if you're a Jostin school, and I have your interest right here, make sure you contact your Jostin's representative and ask him or her about Jostin Social. They'll give you all the details. They can get you signed up very quickly, and then you can start doing some really slick stuff. People are going to say, wow, you must have worked really hard, a lot of hours on that stuff. Now, don't tell them that you kind of only did it in like a minute or two. Shh, all right, don't tell them that. You will look terrific, and you will have a tremendous social media presence, either through your own yearbook social media platform or maybe your school's social media platforms. Works both ways. Check it out. This is worth a check. Wow. Jostin Social. Again, have a word with your Jostin's representative. They can give you all the information. All right, now let's get into some of the nuts and bolts on how to go take great photos with whatever you have in your hands. And that includes phones, by the way, as we get back to our friend Mike McLean. All right, let's talk some photography here. Let's talk some base. Let's start with some basic stuff. Now, you know, Mike, I'm going to assume we probably have some rookie people, rookie advisors, maybe rookie yearbook students who might be, you know, checking this out and so on. And uh, what are just some very, this is for the, the newbies, if you will, what are some very simple, basic photo tips for anybody that is going to, I don't know, a sports game, a class, an event, an activity that they can, they know they can walk in and take some good photos with just some very basic tips. What are some that you would share there? Well, there is, uh, I think, the most important basic tip when you're using, uh, when you're out there capturing images. And ironically, it's one of the first things I notice about people and their abilities as a photographer are compositional skills. So people can study compositional rules, and I think those rules are very important. There's several rules out there, like, you know, rule of thirds and rule of, um, you know, leading lines and those kind of things, which I think are important. But I put together a list of three, I, I call them my simple steps to getting excellent photography, right? So those three step, steps are very simple for students to remember. And I actually came up with this idea when I was working with some college students and we had done an hour and a, an hour and a half long session on um, composition, which can be very you know, complex and kind of hard to understand and remember all those rules. So me and a co-teacher came up with these three simple rules in the hopes that these three simple rules sort of encompass all of the rules of composition and what it takes to make a good photograph. So I think the best thing to do is to share those with you and we'll just go through them one by one. So they're called my three simple steps for good composition. And the first one is to fill the frame. 
So that means get as close to the subject as you possibly can. The tendency when you're a young photographer or inexperienced photographer is to stay away from your subject matter. And because you're a little bit apprehensive, but that is counterintuitive to photography. So I always tell people it's best to get close to your subject matter. And when you fill that frame, it's going to eliminate all of the distracting elements. So filling the frame is one, the number one rule. And there's a very famous World War II photographer who said, if your images aren't good enough, it means you're not close enough. And that really still holds true today is getting close to your subjects. And the second rule is control your backgrounds. And controlling your backgrounds is sounds like a simple thing to do. But beginning photographers or people that are just starting to shoot, they focus their sub their eyes on their subject and they never really look beyond their subject for distracting elements. So controlling your background can be as simple as moving from one position to another position. It could be as simple as if you have a telephone pole or a light pole coming out of your subject, it can be as simple as getting a lower angle so that you put that light pole behind your subject and it's no longer a distraction. So that is one important way to change a background. The other way to change a background is by using an aperture like F4 or F2.8. And when you use an aperture like F4 or 2.8, that's gonna throw a distracting background out of focus and make it soft so that the, the reader is not paying attention to that distracting background. And of course, the most important rule we say for last, and that is shoot great moments. And that's really the pinnacle of what photojournalism is all about is capturing great moments. And the way we, the way we encourage photographers to do that, let me tell you about a quote by sort of the father of photojournalism. His name was Henry Cartier-Bresson. And he coined the phrase, the decisive moment, right? And the way he was questioned by reporters at a press conference one time and said, what is the decisive moment? And he had a great answer. And the way he answered that question was the decisive moment is when all the key storytelling elements come together in a split second. So capturing those moments from the perspective of Henry Cartier-Bresson's, the decisive moment is really easy to do using a few tips. Now, what I always encourage my photographers to do is to avoid the spray and pray technique of photography. So what that means, Scott, is sometimes I've watched, I just watched it this past weekend, photographers will go to an area and they'll shoot a few photos over here and they'll shoot a few photos over here and then they'll shoot a few photos over here. And those might be okay photos. But what I tell my students to do is focus on people's reactions, focus on elements of expression, focus on little simple things because photography in photography, good moments happen with just a simple expression a simple reaction. Those really are what we define moments as. And I just told this to the, my group of photographers on Saturday was in order to get those moments, you have to shoot a lot of almost moments, right? So all those almost moments are moments that happen in anticipation of getting that moment. And far too often young photographers are not patient enough 
to capture those moments. And that's one of the principal reasons I still continue to get work and stay so busy, even in economic challenging times, is that I'm able to shoot good moments using that technique. I watch for people's expressions. I watch for people's reactions. And I let those those human experiences evolve naturally. Now, one of the photographers said, raised her hand in my class on Saturday and said, well, we're always having people always, you know, gr grab their friend and kind of focus on, you know, they want us to take sort of posed photos. She called it a grip and grin photo where they're grabbing their friend and they're kind of mugging for the camera. Like you see on Instagram right now, people posing and stuff like that. She says, what do you do about that? And my answer was, whenever somebody poses for me, I immediately give them a nonverbal communication, which is I'm going to use this phone that I have used before on assignments. So as an example, if someone's posing for me and they're just mugging for the camera, I'll bring my camera down and immediately just kind of turn down. And that's a nonverbal communication that lets my subject know, hey, he's not interested in taking pose photos. Very often I will tell people, hey, I can't get pose photos because I'm not allowed to shoot those. So when I was a high school kid, my journalism teacher, we were shooting film in those days. My journalism teacher said, we will absolutely not waste money shooting pose photos of people, you know, mugging for the camera, because that's not what we do in your book world. We're shooting photos that tell stories. And those photos, the people, if you shoot those photos, it encourages people to behave like that at, you know, pep rallies or football games and things like that. We really want to do our best to capture spontaneous, candid moments. And I think that's what's most important. So being patient with yourself and allowing a situation to evolve naturally. And one of my photographers told me a story on this weekend where there was something really cool happening and she missed it. And she said, I just missed it. And I really felt bad. And I said, well, if you're patient and you're watching something evolve an expression or a reaction, you miss a shot. It could be, this was at a volleyball game. And I said, just keep watching because we're all creatures of habit. And they will do that expression or jump again off the bench. That That's what one of the pleasures doing is just kind of jumping off the bench. And I said, let's watch them again. And sure enough, in about two or three minutes or another point was scored on the volleyball court. This uh, uh, athlete on the other side of the court from us just jumped up and went wild. It was just one point. They weren't winning a game, but she had this amazing, she was very enthusiastic about the game. And she got an amazing image because she was patient enough to wait. So that's a key element. So those three simple rules, fill the frame, control your background, and shoot great moments. Mike, I love that tip. I, I never realized um, because kids still mug for the camera. My goodness, they do it every day, everywhere. The yeah. idea of just put your camera down, and when somebody sees you put your camera down, they're going to think, oh, okay, he doesn't want that. All right. And then you move on to other stuff. I That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant because unfortunately, when I get a chance to work with student photographers, I see it too often. You know, there are people goofing for the camera and then those end up in the yearbook. And I tell kids, guys, is this what you do in school all day? The answer is no. Okay. Why do we have this in the yearbook? Put the camera down. But I mean, if you're at an event, Mike, it sounds like your camera is pretty much always up right? You're always looking for something. Yeah, I'm looking for the uh, the expressions or reaction. I'm watching, I'm scanning the crowd or for people's faces that they're reacting very unusually. 
Um, I'm also, too, very aware of two important elements that I think that as photojournalists that are, we're required uh, to cover. And I think this is another important tip that people should write down because this is some good stuff, is I think that whenever we're covering an event, it could be an academic event, it could be, you know, an after school activity, it could be a uh, sporting event, is to cover the, the action and the reaction. So action is important because action is that can be a key storytelling element. You know, it's when that that volleyball player scores, you know, that that last point and you can see the, the strain as a volleyball player goes up to to return the ball. You can see the strain and the emotion on her face. It's a peak action moment. But sometimes more important than those peak action moments very often is the reaction. So always just because you hear the whistle blow doesn't mean that the photography action has ended. That means that maybe you scan the crowd in the stadium. Maybe you look at the, the, the sidelines. Maybe you watch the cheerleaders on the sidelines because you can always get a reaction that can be just as powerful sometimes as that reaction shot. And I think that's something that young photographers overlook often. So those photos can be great storytelling moments as well. Mike, is it easy or hard to anticipate something while you're out there taking shots? I've told kids for years, try to anticipate what's going to happen at a sports game because the running back's already run the ball 20 times. He's probably going to run it some more times. Go ahead, focus on him. I mean, that sounds easy, but is it is it maybe that's actually hard to try to anticipate what's going to happen so you can go get a good shot? Well, I think the challenge is, and this is the interesting thing for young people, the people that have a natural sense of sports, maybe they were involved in sports as a younger person, but they understand the dynamic. I was never, I was always a photographer when I was a kid, so I never really participated in uh, high school athletics, but I had to force myself to really learn about the game. So if it's fourth down and you know, a yard to go, then chances are they're going to try to run that ball. But if it's fourth down and you have, you know, 15 yards to go, chances are they're going to try to toss that. Just simple things like that. The more you know about a particular game, then the better you're going to be. And um, I had to, the occasion uh, to shoot a lacrosse game in Maryland uh, recently, and I had somebody, I had a, somebody that was with me that was talking to me about where they were giving me clues on what was going to happen next and where the best position would be for shooting that lacrosse game because I'd never photographed lacrosse before. But those kind of things, the more you know about a particular sport, then the better you're going to be at capturing that sport. So if a student goes out to cover a sports game, an, an event, uh, a newsy type thing, it's not enough to just show up. You Should you really sort of, I'm not sure how you would do this in some cases, do some homework before you go to the event. I mean, it sounds like that's something that really any good photographer should do. Do their homework. Yeah, do your homework. And also, too, another tip that I give people when they're covering an event, and this is really, this is true for me, and I'll, I will... Um, I just recently had, I'll, I'll tell you a story about West Point, which is in New York, you know, for my coverage there. One of the things I always tell my photographers to do, and I, by the way, 
uh, I think one of the things that's different about me is I'm actually cover out covering assignments every day. And I think that's why people really have a listening ear for what I would say to them. But one of the things that the hard and fast rule of assignment coverage is to arrive early and stay late. So arriving early means getting there before, you know, anybody else is there. And I do that for a couple of reasons. The number one reason I arrive early is it kind of gets me into a headspace where I'm thinking about the activity. I'm sort of like like an actor would get into character. I arrive early so I can kind of scope out the place. I make sure that I have my bearings. I know where the, you know, I know where to get water and I know where to, the bathrooms are and things like that. So arriving early, that's important. But arriving early gives you an opportunity for so many more visual opportunities. So those visual opportunities, it could be maybe a football player taping up his ankle before they take the field. You know, the other players are out practicing on the field and maybe one football player is, you know, all alone on the bench taking, taping up his ankle. That kind of stuff, those kind of photos can be just as important. And staying late, you can get so many amazing images um, of the, you know, excited football players or football players that have lost the game and they're kind of feeling rejected. You know, those type photos are just really gold, you know, gold in your in your portfolio. That's the kind of stuff we look for as professionals as we're evaluating portfolios. That's the kind of stuff that we look for as photographers here are those before moments or those after moments. And it might mean that you arrive 10 or 15 minutes early or it might mean that you arrive, um, you know, an hour early. But it. I think that's so critical. So the story about West Point is this past year I was uh, covering graduation and um, there's a photograph that the cadets walk up from their barracks um, to get their diploma to the, the stadium at, at West Point called Mikey Stadium. And um, I had always wanted to get this one photo. I had never done it before. So in the eight years I've provided coverage up there, I had never got this photograph. I'd seen it before, but I'd never gotten it. And it was a photograph of these cadets walking across this bridge from the lake that is behind the stadium. There's this really sort of a gothic looking, you know, stone bridge that all the cadets walk across. And so I had set my mind to get that shot this time. And I was working with a video guy, a video, just me and a video guy. And I had messaged him uh, that morning and said, hey, look, there's fog rolling into the Hudson River Valley. And I think we should get there early so that we can get a shot of those cadets walking across the bridge. And he said, let's go. So we got there. It was two hours earlier than we really need to be there. Right. So we got into position and off in the distance, this fog was this beautiful fog was sort of like out of a movie. Right. And it was almost it was very cinematic experience. And just talking about it now kind of gives me a chill at my spine. But these cadets, you could hear the, their boots you know, as they were walking on the pavement up to this bridge, you couldn't see them. And once they got into the light um, and once they started crossing the bridge, you could see their faces. And it was a very, you know, amazing moment. My video guy, who's a college graduate, just a recent college graduate, he was like, oh, my God, this looks like a scene out of a movie. And all that we got that shot and I posted that shot on my social media and I had people contact me from all these news bureaus, tell me, oh my God, that's the best picture ever. And it's really not a hard photo to get because like I said, it happens every year, but it's very unusual for fog to be in the Hudson River Valley in, in May, right? So that's what made the photo unusual. 
for the readers to see these cadets walking across that bridge in the summertime and this fog behind them. And that's what made the photo interesting and uh, worth every bit of that two hour arrival early time, right? So yeah, we had to sit around, but we're sitting around after we get that shot and I'm flipping through my camera. I was so excited. My my video guy's flipping through his footage and he's like showing me these pictures and it's all really amazing. And it's like that that reward is so much better than worrying about, well, I could sleep an extra two hours. Why sleep an extra two hours when you can have a photo that I know is going to be one of my favorite photos for the rest of my life, right? So sometimes getting there early can be the difference between an ordinary photographer and an extraordinary photographer. That sounds really cool. Wow, that what a story. That's amazing. Okay. We'll get back to our final segment with our friend Mike McLean, professional photographer and terrific photo instructor coming up in a moment. i tell you what, sharpen your pencil while we kill some time here because Mike's going to get into the nuts and bolts of cameras. I'll be honest, I'd like to think I'm pretty good at photos, but I don't know the ins and outs and all the technicalities and stuff of really using, say, an SLR camera to its fullest potential. Mike is going to get into that here in this final segment. You're going to find out what a nifty 50 is. All right, if you have no idea what a nifty 50 is, very valuable thing, by the way, get ready because Mike's going to talk about that here in just a moment. So you're piling up all those photos, which is great. Hopefully you're taking tons and tons of photos, probably more photos than you're ever going to be able to use in the book. That's a good thing. I know every year I seem to run into situations, well, we didn't have enough photos. And I kind of look like, really? I mean, how many photos did you take? And it's like, well, 15? That's not enough. We want to take lots of photos and hopefully good photos. But the question is, okay, what do we do with all these extra photos that we just didn't have room for? Which is a real shame. And that's been happening forever. You know, all those photos kind of go on to waste. We didn't have room for them. What do we do with them? Well, again, if you're a Jostin School, we got something for you, all right? It's what we call Yearbook Plus which is our digital feature, which gives every yearbook staff out there an opportunity to share out those unused photos that you didn't have room for, digitally link them to the pages of your book, so that when your book eventually comes out, folks, come on, most folks have a smartphone in their hand, whatever the phone is, whenever it is, they can use their smartphone to kind of unlock those extra images you didn't have room for so that you have an opportunity to share out all those extra photos. That's a fantastic feature of our Yearbook Plus feature. Of course, there's also the other half where individual students have the opportunity to upload up to 10 pictures of themselves linked to their headshot in your book. And so here's a chance for every kid in school to tell their own story with their own pictures always moderated for safety. You get a special website where you get to keep track of everything at all times, no surprises. You can do some rejiggering and, and resituating of things if you want to do that, so that when your book comes out eventually at the end of the year, now not only great pages and photos there, Folks that have a smartphone or a mobile device can scan your code in the book and they can start unlocking what I call the magic. All these extra images that even more tell the story of teams, clubs, classes, groups, people. It is dynamite. And the amazing thing about Yearbook Plus for Jocelyn Schools, it's free. Doesn't 
cost a dime. But all that extra value, not only now, but years into the future with the iPhone 35, if we get that far, or whatever future devices we all end up with at some point, even then, they'll be able to use that device with your 2023 book to unlock the magic. Now, if you're a Johnston School and you still don't know about Your Book Plus, you have got to have a word with your Johnston's representative. This is easy to do and adds so much more to your yearbooking effort. Fabulous. Your Book Plus. Have a word with your Johnston's representative. All right, let's get into some real nuts and bolts of photography and equipment. Really good stuff here with our friend Mike McLean. All right, let's talk about equipment because I know that's changed. Um, all right, so here's my opening question. Most yearbook staffs out there, I think, have an SLR camera, single lens reflex camera with the lenses and so on. But Mike, is this accurate to say that SLRs essentially are going extinct in favor of the new mirrorless cameras. Seems like whenever I go to a catalog or, you know, an online website and so on, I'm seeing more and more mirrorless. I'm not seeing the SLR stuff. Is this changeover happening? Yeah, it's happening gradually. It's not as fast as I think that the manufacturers would want, but we're seeing, and there are benefits to using a mirrorless camera over a DSLR, they are a lot more sophisticated. And for someone like me or you, Scott, it's easier to carry around because they're far lighter than a DSLR camera. But those digital SLR cameras um, are still very cost-effective. So the only challenge, and this is how I present this information to the students I work with, the only challenge with purchasing a mirrorless camera right now is the price point. Those things are very expensive. And just even for me, I still use DSLR cameras and I haven't made that transition yet because I see the camera that I want that's a mirrorless camera is going to be about $2,500, right? So I'm like, okay, I'll give it another year or two and wait until the prices come down because as you know, technology, when it's first introduced, the prices are just outrageous. And after a year or two or three, the prices start coming down. So once those prices start coming down, then I would recommend that your um, that your journalism programs look at getting a DSLR camera, but a DSLR camera that's compatible with the lenses that are existing. In order to make those lenses compatible with like Canon or Nikon, they have to get the adapter ring. But I think that adapter ring is about a $200 purchase item but once you do that, then that adapter ring can be a benefit because you're able to use existing lenses. And I think in the game of photojournalism, it's really about the lenses. So if you have a good set of lenses for your yearbook or your publication now, um, just waiting a couple of years and then making that purchase of a mirrorless camera and go ahead and throw into the kit that adapter so that you can use your current lenses with your mirrorless camera. But yeah, I think it's something that's coming and I'm excited about it. I've used the mirrorless cameras and I like them a lot. But um, right now for most of the schools that don't have a big budget, and let's face it, Scott, most of the schools we work with don't have big budgets. A few of the budget schools I work with have really big budgets, but most of the schools, even the schools with larger budgets um, are still using the, the uh, digital single lens reflex cameras. 
All right, let me, Mike, let me make sure I'm understanding this because I, I think I'm learning something here. If I've got a DSLR camera with lenses and at some point in the future I get a mirrorless camera, I can't just take the lenses from the DSLR and plop it on the mirrorless camera and off I go. It's not that simple? No, you because of the way the, the uh, mirrorless cameras have no mirror, so the, the lens has to be adapted so that that lens focuses properly with that camera. So that adapter ring actually screws onto the camera first. So you'll screw that adapter ring onto the camera first, then the lens goes onto the adapter ring. And that makes that lens compatible with that, um, that mirrorless camera. All right, now folks, take a note. I'll be honest, Mike, I didn't realize that. Um, so again, lenses will work from one to the other, but you've got to have that adapter ring to make sure everything works properly, correct? Right. And let's just go ahead and say this, and this is another point of clarification, is that if your school is currently a Nikon school, then you need to get a Nikon mirrorless camera. And if your school is currently a Canon school, then you need to get a Canon mirrorless camera so that it is compatible with those lenses that you have existing. Because you can't add a Nikon lens to a Canon camera no matter what even if you have the adapter ring you still have to use the canon lenses or the nikon lenses for the respected brands all right folks square peg round hole doesn't work okay nikon to nikon canon to canon that's the way it works let's talk about lenses because oh goodness mike there seems to be a, a, a million lenses out there of all kinds um i guess maybe you know for folks that are, are purchasing maybe right now I mean, what's a lens or two that every yearbook staff should have to take certain kinds of photos? Well, I think that the, the, the important thing that people realize is that kit lens that comes with the camera. And most of the schools I work with, they buy the camera package, which means it comes with the camera and a lens. And that kit lens, which is typically a... Um, a 17 millimeter lens to 55 millimeter lens. Um, that is a decent lens um, for where you have an abundance of light. So that means that that lens is a, that 17 to 55 millimeter lens is a variable aperture. So at 17 millimeters, that lens is a 3.5. And as you zoom in to 55, that lens becomes a 5.6. So that makes that lens almost impossible to use in an indoor situation, unless you have lots of light, because most schools um, will send a photographer out to the gym to get pep rally shots and the aperture doesn't open up. So it doesn't allow a lot of light in. So that five, as they zoom in, that that lens is a 5.6 lens, which means that your aperture opening is about like this. And that gives you very minimal light in a low light situation. So for the replacement for that lens that I would encourage my advisors to do, and I've had advisors far and wide tell me this has really changed their program, is to get what we call a nifty 50. And that nifty 50 is a 50 millimeter lens, 1.8. So that means that allows a lot of light in. It's a general recommended lenses, a general recommend lens for all 
um, for all student publications because you can use that lens um, to cover uh, activities in the gym and you can use that lens to cut to shoot portraits you can use that lens to photograph i had two students this past weekend that had that lens and they covered volleyball and they got some fantastic shots what makes that lens that 50 millimeter lens and i want to underscore here that's a 50 millimeter 1.8 lens now that 50 millimeter means it doesn't zoom Right. So when people first get that lens, they say, oh, how do you make this lens zoom? And I'm like, it doesn't zoom. You have to zoom with your feet. But that's one of the benefits. It's called a fixed focal length lens. So that means that that's why you're able to get that aperture of 1.8, which means that you can shoot in very low light situations because that 1.8 aperture, it can open up and allow a lot more light into an environment. So if you could even photograph like backstage where they have limited lighting and get great shots because that lens is so nice and so tacked and available to open up so you can let in all this light. Students often become believers after using that lens. And that's the first lens I would recommend. And then I would recommend a good medium telephoto lens, which would be like a 24 to 70. And I think those 24 to 70s are great lenses. But a good lens to have and to buy, which I think is critical for covering sports, is the 70 to uh, 200 millimeter sports lens. And the 70 to 200 millimeter sports lens is exactly the focal length you need to cover um, field uh, hockey or to cover any nighttime sporting event. Or you can use it to cover basketball games in the gym or wrestling meets in the gym. It's a good all around sports lens. Now. The thing about that lens that makes it so special is it has a fixed aperture lens. It's a fixed aperture lens, meaning that when you are at 70 millimeters, you can have that lens set to an aperture of 2.8. And as you zoom in, that lens remains at 2.8. It's not like a variable aperture lens like we just talked about. It's a fixed aperture lens. So zooming into 200 means that you're still going to have that aperture of 2.8. Now, Scott, I'll give you one tip here that I think is really important for people to realize is that you can buy those lenses directly from the manufacturer like Canon or Nikon or Sony, and they're very expensive, right? But you can buy something called an aftermarket lens. And let me explain, because I think this is really how we can save our journalism programs budget is buying an aftermarket lens means that you're paying about 50% of retail cost, but you're using a uh, you're using companies that specialize in making lenses for particular cameras. So those lenses will sell you, it will save you about 50%. Now, the real caveat is when you're ordering that lens, you need to make sure that you're ordering a lens that's compatible with your camera. So that means you have to do a little bit of homework to make sure the, the aftermarket lens that you're purchasing is actually the lens that fits for your camera. So that's one of the great tips. And the school that I worked with here in Denton um, this past weekend, they had all aftermarket lenses and those lenses are, were just beautiful. I mean, they were capturing amazing volleyball photographs on our assignment and uh, they really paid about 50% off of what they would be paying if they were buying the manufactured lens from Canon, Nikon or Sony. And they work just as well. They do work just as well. 
So let me say one other thing about lenses. I think it's important to remember is because I just had this come up with a group that I worked with. They had a 75 to 300 millimeter lens and they were using that lens inside the gym and they were completely frustrated because it was a variable aperture lens. So again, at 75, that lens was a 3.5. And as they zoomed in, that lens became a 5.6 lens. Now that lens, and I told them this, I think this is something that's important for your audience to keep in mind. It doesn't mean because that's a variable aperture lens, you throw that lens away because there are lots of applications that would work perfectly for that lens. So some of the applications we came up with this weekend where you could photograph cross country with that lens. Because as you know, in cross country, we, um, you know, we have an abundance of light. Generally, it's a Saturday afternoon. Or you can photograph golf with that lens because generally when you're photographing golf, you have you know, a, a good amount of light. And any outdoor activity, those track meets on Saturday that happen at the stadium, that 75 to 300 millimeter lens would be perfect. So as a matter of fact, that lens, and it's a really inexpensive lens, if you're photographing anything outdoors, I would recommend that you take that lens with you because you'll be amazed at the, the image quality that you can get. So one of the examples that I, I'd like to show is a surfing photo that I shot in California. And you can see in this example, you can see that um, I'm shooting with a long lens and I'm a good distance away from that surfer. And uh, you can see my metadata right here. So I'm able to shoot at a very high shutter speed and my ISO is set at 100. And generally when we're working outdoors, we want our ISO to be set at 100. So we can, at ISO 100, we're gonna get the best quality images possible. We're gonna get the best sharpness. So in this example, I shot at 100 and then take a look at how this image looks cropped. And you can see there's almost no image loss quality. And the reason for that is because we have an abundance of light. So using that 75 to 300 outdoor lighting situations can be a great benefit. Even at football stadiums, um, when you're when you have uh, the early season before the light starts to get bad, um, that's the time to be capturing uh, sporting events outdoors where you still have a decent amount of natural light before the time changes and the, the sun starts to go down faster. All right, now, Mike, that's all great information. That's fantastic. Folks, hope you took notes. But, I, Mike, I know we have somebody, their head is swimming right now with 75 and all the terms and all the stuff, but they have a smartphone in their pocket. Now, I've got a newer iPhone, and, Mike, this thing takes really good pictures, I think. I think it's awesome. Um, just a few years ago, I was telling, you know, your book kids, no, I, no phones, no, no, don't do it, don't do it. Now... I, I mean, Mike, uh, smartphones, uh, the newer smartphones, am I wrong? They take great photos. They will do the they job do. for us, yes? They do. And I've I've taken plenty of photos with my uh, smartphone that wound up in publications just because it was the phone I had handy. I think the smartphones are great for general type photography. And one of, you know, portraits and covering events and things like that. And using those three simple rules that we talked about earlier – you know, filling the frame, controlling your background and shooting great moments, all that stuff applies to smartphones too. Um, but the thing, the limitation of those smartphones is going to be the sporting activities. 
So you can cover a lot of assignments with that smartphone, but you can't get good stopped action when you're using that smartphone. All right. Now, one other thing, though, um, lighting, good lighting using smartphones. You know, you're out and about and, and, and thing. And maybe it's at dusk or at night and so on. Sometimes that's not so great. Now, you've got something there that maybe can help. It seems like a simple thing that you can help with lighting involving using a smartphone. What? Let's talk about lighting here a little bit. Well, I think that lighting and we uh, uh, during the pandemic, you know, we had most of the photography that was being captured in your books across the nation um, with some exceptions. But most of the photographers are working with their smartphones is that we kind of came up with this technique of how to improve um, portraits, environmental portraits using the, the your your DSLR camera or smartphone, because this simple technique applies to both. I'm just going to reach over here and grab it. Uh, Scott, this is called a reflector. And these are little items that I actually, this is actually mine that I keep in my um, the back pocket of my camera bag. And it's just simple. And what it does is it allows you to add, there's a gold side, which looks like this, and then a silver side and it pops open. So I'm going to pop it open now so you can, it's not, you can get different sizes, but it's not that big and it's super lightweight. That is used to kind of give your photography, your portraits, a little bit of a fill light. And the reason I like this, and I like to encourage my students to try this, is that you can actually see the impact that this reflector is, uh, is having on your subject, right? So it's a continuous light. Sometimes uh, this past weekend, they were photographing a, their, uh, their rockets, which were their drill team, and they were doing several portraits and they were using this. And sometimes they have to find the light but you can see it, it can find light really simply. It takes a little bit of time, but you can find light and you can add a punch of light. So here are some examples that I think are important for people to see the impact. So in this one photo, you see a student um, that's a baseball player and you can see the light is coming primarily from behind the subject. And you can see that because you can see the highlights on the side of his face and on his ears. And he would be under normal conditions because a photographer would be shooting directly into the sun. Under normal conditions, this student would be completely underexposed or dark. But because we added this reflector, and you can see the impact the reflector is having, we were able to get a little bit of fill light to the subject. And it had made this photograph, it went from ordinary to an extraordinary portrait. So there are lots of applications. I generally tell students the best way to use reflector is to modify the light that you're working in. So as long as you have a little bit, of, you can even use these indoors. If you have a little bit of natural light or perhaps it's a fluorescent light, you want to make take that fluorescent light portrait so that it looks better, then um, you can use this, this uh, reflector. The other important tool that I would recommend students try out, which has been invaluable to me, and direct sun, and it's called a translucent disc. And you can see a translucent disc is a silk-like fabric. So it's a white translucent disc. And this is perfect for walk, working in what we call spotty sunlight, where you're having to block the light that's coming through trees. It can really soften the light that's coming from overhead because everybody knows that light that's coming from overhead can give you 
dark shadows under your eyes and white noses. And if you're doing portraits, this these tools are invaluable to you and they're relatively inexpensive to buy. So the most the most often asked question I get from my students is which side do I use gold or silver? And I always say some people are going to look better with silver and some people are going to look better with gold. It's up for you to decide. So every skin tone is going to be a little bit different, right? So you want to try out the gold with your subject. And if the gold makes them look too yellow, then you want to flip back, flip the, the disc over so that you're able to use the silver. So these reflectors have been a big, big hit because you can do amazing portraits, even with your cell phone. It's pretty amazing what a, what a reflector can do in terms of getting good portraits, particularly for some of the schools that we're working with where they have to grab those portraits in a very quick manner. And uh, even what we were calling now sportraits, where you're photographing, you know, sports, uh, uh, sports athletes, um, you're having to grab a quick portrait there. You can have one of these in your backpack and you can be working with another student or just ask a friend to hold the reflector for you. And you can get really amazing shots. The one key, though, that I tell people is you have to be very careful about holding that reflector. If you're holding the reflector underneath somebody like this, then you're going to, if you're holding it underneath a person's chin, you're going to get really scary lighting. The best place to hold the reflector is just to the side and slightly lower. So almost like this from your subject. So a little bit to the side and like this, not like this. So people would be getting that really sort of horror, you know, spooky light, unless that's the effect you're going for. But you generally don't want to light portraits where the light's coming from beneath them. Now, folks, it's interesting. Mike and I are doing this via Zoom, and he is maneuvering this thing where he is. And Mike, I really see the difference. I mean, it's huge. Um, I'm just curious for folks that don't have a Photoshop maybe near them, where do you get that stuff? Where, where can you order that? Well, I would recommend there's a um, – I make no money from these people. I have to say this first before I give you a link, and I'll let you use this link. But there's a place local in Dallas-Fort Worth called Cowboy Studios. And they, this one right here, actually, it was in there. And my, and um, I bought these all summer long because I traveled with them. Um, but at the beginning of the summer, their original price was nine dollars for this size, which is a pretty good size, and it's, it's not too big that it still fits in the back pocket of my camera bag. It was nine dollars. I put it in my cart to check out, and it went from nine dollars to six dollars. So they can buy it on Cowboy Studios. Um, or you can buy it, just search reflectors on Amazon and find them there. The reflectors in conjunction with the translucent disc can have a huge impact, particularly for those photos that are going to be played bigger in a yearbook. They can really set your yearbook photography apart. And trust me on this, is that that's what the largest schools that are winning the awards are doing, is they're taking every step they can to set their photos apart from the other photos that are being shot. And one of those steps is to get a good reflector to take with you on location folks that could be the best nine dollars of yearbook money you ever spend so get that thing guys it's great that that's uh, either of them that's really amazing mike i tell you what we're out of time uh, so much great information again we're so thrilled that you help jostens and Jostin schools and you've been doing it for years with all this great uh know-how and experience and the apprenticeship idea, which, yeah, that makes perfect sense. All right. Have a, a yearbook apprentice. And Mike, I suppose 
you know, on a yearbook staff, let's say you have a high school senior and here comes a freshman, let the freshman be your apprentice and teach that kid, right? Yeah. I think that's really important. That's one of the things that we train our photographers to do is to be good mentors. Because when I was a sophomore, I was mentored by a senior photographer. And that is the best way for students to learn is when they're learning from other students. And that's really what the most effective uh, yearbook in the country, that's what the yearbooks in the country are doing, is they're really, the right. let's face it, the yearbook advisors are really crazy busy with so many other things going on. But you put seniors in charge of mentoring those younger photographers and you let them do that work. So it takes that effort off of you, off the advisor's plate. And the students can learn a lot more from a peer than they can, you know, from an advisor. And I think that is a really good tip, Scott. That's a perfect tip to end this. Absolutely perfect. Mike, I really appreciate you taking time to be with us. And thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. Once again, a big, big thank you to our friend Mike McLean, professional photographer. We're going to go shorter because we're way over time with our normal podcast length. But Mike had so much great material. We hope that you listen here to the end and you learned a lot of new things about photography. Now, here's the deal. Let's go out and do something with it. If it's with your SLRs, if it's with your smartphones, or maybe iPads, if you're one of those schools, you know, everybody has an iPad and so on. The goal here, take better photos this year. I can guarantee you will immediately improve the quality of your book probably two, three, four times simply by taking and posting better photos. So let's go do that. And a big thank you again to Mike to helping us get there. Really good stuff. And friends, we appreciate you listening to the end. We really do. Thank you for listening to the Yearbooking Report podcast. 